Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Bill Telephone Education Series. Uh, Dr. Bill is the Chief of Optometric Services and Coordinator of the Children's Programs for the Center for the Partially Sighted here in Los Angeles, as well as our Director of Low Vision Training at Braille Institute. Uh, tonight, we are just really thrilled to have Dr. Bill talking to us about aniridia, uh, albinism, coloboma, a variety of pediatric eye conditions, and certainly a chance to have um, your, your questions answered when he does, when he's able to provide, ask, ask Dr. Bill. So without further ado, thank you, Dr. Bill. Well, thank you very much, Sue, and I want to thank all of you for attending another seminar that we're going to be having this evening. Uh, it's, it's really been a very pleasure to Sue and I to see the number of people who've been joining these calls, and we'd also really like to thank Mr. Dick Burden and Ayers L.A., who are recording this particular podcast tonight. Now, this podcast, it will be available uh, for you to listen to at two different locations. One, you could go to the Braille Institute webpage at www.brailleinstitute.org. You may also go to Airs LA at www.airs, that's A-I-R-S-L-A.org, and there you'll find uh, a history of many, many different podcasts that are related to children's vision. So this evening, what we're basically going to be talking about are some of the more common types of vision conditions that do affect young children. In our previous podcast, we've talked about the fact that the leading cause of vision impairment among children nowadays is cortical vision impairment. And this is when the visual centers of the brain do not process visual information normally. But tonight, we're going to really talk about some of the other causes of vision impairment in which the retina or the inside structure of the eye is damaged. Now, to begin with, we're going to do a little bit of a review of anatomy. And in order for a person to be able to see, we know that the eyes must be able to process light. So when a person is looking at a television or a child is looking at a flower, the light rays from the sun or a light bulb reflect off the flower, and then it passes through the cornea, then it goes through the pupil, which is a black circular opening in the center of the eye, and it eventually it then focuses on a tissue that lines the entire inside of the eye, and that is called the retina. Now, the retina is able to absorb these light rays, and it converts it into electrical signals. And then these electrical signals are sent through the optic nerve until it reaches the back part of the brain. Now, within the retina, we know that the retina is a very, very delicate tissue, and if you were to look at it, it does look something like toilet paper. It's very, very thin, and it drapes the entire inner surface of the eyeball. So it's similar to having tissue paper that is lining the inside of the eye, or you could think about opening up a tennis ball and trying to lay tissue paper on the inside of the tennis ball. Now, one of the more common causes of vision impairment among children is when the retina is not functioning normally. The retina contains millions and millions of cells, and in some cases, these cells are not developed normally. The first condition that we're going to talk about this evening is called achromatopsia. 
and this is also sometimes called rod monochromatism. But in achromatopsia, this is a situation when the person does not have the cone cells of the central retina. When we look at that retina that we talked about before, the retina is actually organized in two different geographical regions. In the very center, there is the central region of the retina, and this is what is responsible for detailed vision, color vision, and it also helps one to adapt to various lighting conditions. So when you think about the organization of the retina, you might almost think of it as being similar to a archery target. You have a bullseye in the middle, and that middle portion, the bullseye, is what is called the macula. Now, in achromatopsia, this is a congenital condition in which the macula, or the entire central region of the retina, it is not developed, or it may be very, very severely underdeveloped. So in these particular cases, these children, they do not have the macular vision, and as a result, they do not have clear, detailed vision, they do not have color vision, and they cannot adapt to various lighting conditions. So when these children are born, very often they have a difficult time opening their eyes. They often cannot see the details of a mother or father's face clearly, and as a result, they often will not make eye contact. When these children do open their eyes, you may also notice that their eyes will shake very rapidly from side to side. This is something that is called nystagmus. Now, for these children, we want to provide the intervention as early as possible. If we can help these children to be able to open their eyes more comfortably, that will allow the retina to receive light stimulation, and that stimulation will then stimulate the brain. Now, we know this is extremely important for the brain to receive this type of stimulation because if the brain does not receive the maximal stimulation, it will affect the development of the brain cells, and this affects the development of vision. For children, we do see that many, many children have cortical vision impairment, and this is a situation in which the visual center of the brain is not fully developed, and by providing that type of visual stimulation, these children will develop a higher level of vision. So in achromatopsia, we want to do the same thing as we do with children with cortical vision impairment. So to begin with, we will perform an eye examination to determine whether or not these children do need glasses. They may need a prescription to correct for the farsightedness or the nearsightedness or astigmatism, and we will prescribe these glasses for children as young as one month of age. But what's also very important is that we will incorporate a tinted lens in the glasses. By giving the child a tinted lens, it's going to enable him or her to open their eyes. The light rays will then focus onto the retina, and this will be a way that the child could recognize and look at a parent's face. Later, as they develop, they will be able to perceive different toys and objects. But in most cases of achromatopsia, these children do not have color vision. And that is why it's called achromatopsia. A means without, chroma is color. So they really don't have that type of color vision. 
Now, parents often are very, very upset and very worried, and they have the right to be so. But in reality, when a child does have achromatopsia, it does not really have to affect their vision significantly. We know that children and adults who do have achromatopsia, they are not able to see colors, but when they do see colors, they're in the form of different shades of gray. So it's similar to watching a black and white television. The color red might appear a particular shade of gray, and the color blue can appear another shade of gray. As a result, these children can discriminate the two different colors because they do appear to be a different shade of gray. We also know that these children, when we do prescribe them with these tinted types of lenses, they are able to see things much more comfortably. In many cases, we will even fit them with a tinted contact lens so that it would simulate night vision. With these types of tinted contact lenses, they could perform and function much more effectively. And then we will also recommend the use of specialized low vision aids. This can include specialized glasses. It may be glasses that has a small telescope in it. We have reading glasses. We have low vision magnifiers. Video magnifiers are extremely helpful for these children because with a video magnifier, we could make the background of what they're reading black, and then we could then have the letters to be white. So overall, the child or the student who does have achromatopsia, these children do very, very well. They usually have a very high degree of functional vision. I even have some patients who have achromatopsia, and they even do have a restricted driver's license. So for these children... This is something that we do want to intervene with the low vision aids as early as possible. It may include the contact lenses, low vision devices, assistive technology. And the good thing about this condition is that these children, they do not become totally blind. This is not a progressive condition, and their peripheral vision is very, very strong. So for them, they often prefer to be working in a dim area or they like to play outdoors at night. The most difficult situation for them is when they're in the direct sunlight. Now, the next condition we're going to talk about is albinism. Now, albinism is a condition in which the child or the adult does not have the normal coloration or pigmentation to the eyes, hair, and the skin. Now, this is something that is an inherited type of condition, and it is generally a autosomal recessive trait. So what that means is that the mother and the father each have to have that particular gene in order for the child to inherit it and to demonstrate albinism. For a child who does have albinism, one of the first things that is noticeable is the fact that their eyes and their hair and their skin may be very, very pale. And in some cases, it's so pale that you could see through some of the structures and you may see some of the blood vessels of the skin. Or if you're looking at the eyes, you, the eyes may literally look pink. Now, with albinism, there are really two different forms that we think about, first of all. There is what is called tyrosinase positive and tyrosinase negative. Now, tyrosinase is a particular type of component that is going to produce that type of coloration with the skin, hair, and the eyes. So 
So if a person has a gene that will produce tyrosinase, they are considered to be tyrosinase positive. These children and these adults with albinism, they may simply look to you to be a person who's very fair skin and their hair might be sort of a sandy blonde color. Their hair is not totally snow white. But you'll notice that these children and adults, they look very, very fair. And when you look at their eyes, maybe their eyes might be slightly blue and their hair might have a tinge of sandy blonde. And these are the patients who often have what is called tyrosinase positive because there is a little bit of pigmentation. When we see the child or the adult who does have a little bit of coloration like that, that slight amount of coloration will lead to them having slightly better vision as compared to the person who is tyrosinase negative. In tyrosinase negative, these people, they do not have the gene that is going to produce any of the chemicals that are necessary to develop the pigment. And thus, a child who is tyrosinase negative, they are extremely, extremely pale. Their hair is perfectly white. And when you look at the colored part of their eyes, the iris, the iris may even then look pink. Now, when we talk about the vision of these children, these children always have photophobia or they're sensitive to light. This is because of the fact that the coloration of the eyes is what protects the eyes from the light and the sun rays. So you'll notice that these children and adults with albinism are almost always very, very sensitive to the light. They, number two, they almost always will have nystagmus, the horizontal shaking of the eyes. And number three, we find that their clarity of sight is going to be reduced. Now, the reason that their clarity of sight is reduced is because of the fact that in their retina, the macula is not fully developed. This is very similar to what we talked about with achromatopsia just a moment ago. So with a child who has albinism, when we look at their retina, the very center part of the retina, the bullseye, which is the macula, the part of the eye that provides detailed vision, it is not fully developed, and as a result, these children and adults, their vision will not correct to 20-20. Their vision often will range any place from 20 over 70 to 20 over 200. Now, we cannot state that every child with albinism sees the same level of acuity. The visual acuity of each child is dependent on whether or not there is a little bit of pigment in the macula, and it also depends somewhat on the degree of the nystagmus. But we find that most children with albinism, they really perform very well in life because of the fact that this is all that they know. They have never seen anything any more clearly, and so they may get closer to something to inspect the details and to play. If they're going to look at a book, they might bring it six inches from their eyes. And if they're going to do other types of activities, they often will use different strategies so that they could magnify what they're trying to see. There is no medical treatment for albinism at this point in time. However, these children and adults are probably the most successful patients 
to treat with low vision aids. We can fit them with glasses at a very young age, and it's very important that the infant with albinism is fit with glasses because children with albinism very often have a high degree of farsightedness and astigmatism. Why is this so important? Well, the reason for that is if a child who has farsightedness or nearsightedness and astigmatism that is not corrected with glasses, these children do not send the maximal signals to the brain, and as a result, the brain does not develop maximally. When we give these young infants glasses at a very young age, everything that they see will focus more sharply onto the retina, and that will send more signals to the brain, and that will then develop the visual centers of the brain to provide maximal vision. We also find that the child who has albinism they adapt very well to low-vision glasses. We could fit them with tinted glasses to reduce the glare. We could give them tinted glasses to reduce the glare. And we could also give them different types of telescopic lenses and bifocal lenses so that they could see distance objects as also close objects with much greater clarity. These children often will participate very, very effectively in sports, to soccer and basketball. I even have some patients that are playing baseball, and they do have the albinism. We also know that children who later become adults with albinism are very successful in terms of using their vision to gain employment. Many of them do have restricted driver's licenses. Another form of albinism is what is called ocular albinism. And this is a situation where the albinism only affects the internal structures of the eye. So when you look at these people, they could have brown hair, black eyes, black hair. They'll have all the pigmentation that a person typically would have. But when we look inside the eyes of these patients, we find that they do not have the normal coloration. And as a result, their vision is often as blurred as 20 over 200. These children are, again, going to be treated in the same way that we treated the others that we talked about with the albinism, but they do not need to be using all of the type of sunscreen that the child who has albinism to the skin as well. We do make special recommendations in the classroom for all the children with albinism, and this would, again, be where they sit in the front portion of the classroom. It's best, if it's possible, to use a dark gray dry erase board or a chalkboard as compared to a whiteboard. We want them to be positioned with their back-facing windows and doors. If we're using paper, a lot of times we recommend tinted paper. We will fit them with glasses. The glasses are often tinted, and they may have a bifocal to give them that kind of magnification. Video magnifiers are very, very helpful for these children as well. And we also then do recommend initially that they are going to be observed very carefully on the playground when they're playing sports. Now, the next condition that we're going to talk about is called aniridia. And aniridia, is spelled A-N-I-R-I-D-I-A, is another genetic type of condition in which the iris, or the colored part of the eye, it is not fully developed. So when we think about aniridia, 
we think about a person that when you look at these children, you might just notice that their eyes look very dark. In many cases, you might think, my goodness, you know, the color of her eyes is almost black. But in reality, what it is is that that child does not have a fully developed iris, so you do not see the brown of the eyes. Or if the person should have blue eyes, you don't see that. And as a result, it is actually the entire pupil that you are noticing, and that's what you see. With children with aniridia, parents often will notice it when they do take photographs. If you take a photograph of a child with aniridia, the flash of your camera is going to reflect light off of the retina, and you will then notice that there's a very large red eye type of reflex. Many of you have seen this in photographs where the eyes are glowing red. But in the child with aniridia, the red reflex is going to be much, much larger. So that is one way that parents often identify it. Another thing is that the child with aniridia also has other types of problems that affect the front portion of the eye. Number one, these children will often have nystagmus, the uncontrollable shaking of the eyes. And what you could tell from this presentation tonight that with all three of the conditions we talked about, whether it is achromatopsia, albinism, or aniridia, all three cases these children generally have that type of horizontal nystagmus. So when you do observe a student or a child who has a horizontal nystagmus, this is one clue that the child should be evaluated right away. Number two, they may have cataracts. And a cataract is when the lens that is inside the eye is no longer transparent. The lens has become clouded, and as a result, light cannot get through the lens very clearly. And as a result, the child's vision may be very blurred. The third thing about aniridia is that it can also affect the development of the macula. Those cells in the macula that provide detailed vision, they're often not fully developed. And as a result, these children's vision might be, again, blurred from the range of 20 over 70 to 20 over 100. A lot of times you might ask the question, what does that mean, 2070? Well, 2070 basically means that from a distance of 20 feet, a child might be able to read a letter that's one and one-half inch tall. So a child or an adult who has 20-70 acuity, their vision is quite functional. But if their vision is worse, say that it's 20 over 100, that means a child can see a letter that's 2 inches tall from 20 feet. And if the child's vision is 20 over 200, it means a child could read a letter that is 4 inches tall from 20 feet. So this gives you an idea as to what the student may be able to see as it relates to seeing things on the chalkboard. Now with aniridia, we want to evaluate these children regularly, and all of these children should all be evaluated regularly. But the child with aniridia, we may want to see them more frequently, at least every six months, because there is a chance that if they do not have a cataract today, that in six months the cataract may develop. They also have a greater risk that they may develop glaucoma. 
And glaucoma is a condition where the pressure of the eye is too high. And when the pressure of the eye becomes too high, it damages the nerve that sends the information from the eyes to the brain. Fortunately, there are some new treatments that are being performed for aniridia. The pediatric ophthalmologists do have new procedures where they can now produce an artificial type of an iris. They do use a special type of a plastic, something that's called polymethyl methacrylate, and they can create that type of an iris. This will improve the cosmetic appearance of the eye, and it can also reduce the amount of light that enters the eye, and as a result, the child may not be bothered by glare quite as much. By having a smaller pupil, it also can improve the focusing of the eye. Many of you who are photographers might recall that when you have a larger aperture or a larger pupil, it affects your focusing. So by having a smaller pupil, we could improve the focusing as well. Another thing that we see that's also very, very encouraging that is if a child who does have aniridia develops a cataract, the cataracts can be removed very, very easily by the pediatric ophthalmologist. And if a child also develops glaucoma where the pressure is too high, there are very, very effective medications and very effective surgical procedures that can lower the pressure. As a result, most children who do have aniridia, if their vision starts to deteriorate, we can then refer them to the ophthalmologist, and the ophthalmologist will then be able to intervene with that type of treatment. Now, in terms of low vision devices, there's many types of low vision devices that are, again, very effective for these children. These children, again, are very sensitive to the light, so we will fit them with tinted glasses, or better yet, we will fit them with a tinted contact lens. Once we fit them with something that's going to reduce the amount of light, they could open their eyes much more effectively. Number two, we will prescribe them glasses. These types of glasses could improve their distance and their vision, and the bioptic telescopic glasses, the glasses that have a small telescope in there, are very, very effective. These children, we do want to pre uh, present visual information to them in high contrast. We could use tinted paper. We want to position them in the front portion of the classroom. We also want to, again, recommend the use of video magnifiers. Video magnifiers for every one of these conditions that we talked about this evening are very helpful because it helps the child to focus both far and near. We also find that for these children, it's also very, very important that they are very aware of the things that maybe they should not do. For example, if they want to take karate and they're going to spar full contact, that may not be a good thing for the child with the aniridia because sometimes the lens inside their eye can become dispositioned. It can become dislocated, and that can affect their vision. But again, the child with aniridia, these children generally will not go totally blind. They respond extremely well to visual aids, and all three of these cases, achromatopsia, albinism, and aniridia, I find that almost all of these patients, they do use their vision to access their educational materials. Now, the next condition we're going to talk about is called the coloboma, C-O-L-O-B-O-M-A. 
And coloboma, by definition, means that part of the eye has not fully developed. So this is something that can affect many different structures of the eye. The first type of coloboma we'll talk about is a coloboma of the iris. So the iris, again, is the colored part of the eye, and very similar to aniridia, where the iris is not normal. But in the coloboma of the iris, it is only the bottom portion of the iris that is missing. So when you look at these children, it looks very interesting in some situations because when you look straight on at them, you may say, well, this child looks pretty good, has brown eyes, green eyes, whatever colored eyes that they do have. But if you pull down their lower lid or if the child looks upward slightly, you will then notice that the pupil, the black opening, it extends all the way down to the very, very bottom. That is what is called a iris coloboma. These children are often going to be very sensitive to the light, so we will fit them again with tinted lenses or a tinted contact lens. These children also can be a potential cataract, excuse me, candidate for surgery to produce that type of an artificial iris. Now, another form of a coloboma is when the inside of the retina is not fully developed. And this is called a choroidal, and that's spelled C-H-O-R-O-I-D-A-L, choroidal coloboma. Now, the choroid is the tissue that is inside the eye that provides all the blood supply to the retina. So if we think about an analogy, if we think about the tennis ball and that we have the tissue paper that's inside the tennis ball, it's almost as though that we took a knife and we cut a wedge, a section like a piece of pie out of that tennis ball. Now, if we take out that section of the choroid, that means that region of the retina does not receive any blood, and as a result, that part of the retina is also not developed. So in the choroidal coloboma, we're missing the part of the eye that provides the blood, and we're also missing that section of the retina. The choroidal colobomas almost always occur in the bottom portion of the eye. Now, as a result, the child who does have the choroidal coloboma, they often do not have peripheral vision in their upper field. So if this child is a person who's going to be playing outdoors and you say, hey, look up, there's an airplane up there, they may not see it until they move their eyes and really scan. The choroidal coloboma may also extend into the macular region of the retina, and if it does extend into the macular region, it's just like the other cases we described above. These children will no longer have detailed clear vision. It can take away a lot of their color vision, and they may also be very sensitive to the glare and the bright light. Now, you're probably wondering, is it possible, can you have a coloboma of the iris and the choroid at the same time? And the answer is yes. This type of a coloboma, it could have affecting, it can affect different individual tissues of the eye. The next part is what's called an optic nerve coloboma. 
and the optic nerve is what sends the information from the retina to the brain, and it is possible that the lower section of the optic nerve may not be fully developed, and as a result, that region of the optic nerve that normally sends information from the bottom of the retina, it will not receive, be received by the brain, and these children may have reduced peripheral vision in the upper field of vision, and they can also have very, very blurred central vision. Now, an interesting factor about the coloboma is that the coloboma, it is something that occurs during the embryonic development of the child. And that coloboma may also affect the different structures of the body. So we do see children who do have what's called a cleft palate, and that is when the inside portion of the roof of their mouth, that portion of the roof of the mouth is missing. We also see that it may affect the upper lip. So you might look at a child and you might notice that underneath the nostril area, there is absolutely no upper lip. It's something that's kind of scary when you first look at it because you don't expect it. But these children do not have that portion of the upper lip. And then if you look more carefully, it may be that they do not have the roof of their mouth in that same section. And if we look even more carefully, we may very often find that part of the heart their heart is actually missing in that same area. So this is why the coloboma is sometimes a developmental type of a, a disorder that affects not only the eyes, but it could affect the, the lip, the mouth, and the heart. There's a condition that is called charge syndrome, and charge syndrome is when that a person may have the coloboma, they'll have a heart problem, They'll have problems with their ears and their hearing. They'll be retarded, mentally retarded, and they could also have genital types of abnormalities. So this is what is called charge syndrome. Now, charge syndrome sounds extremely severe, but I could also tell you that the children with charge syndrome do very, very well. Early intervention, the therapies, the visual aids, all of these things could be extremely helpful for these kids, and we do have many children with CHARGE syndrome who are doing extremely well. But I also want to, again, emphasize that just because a child or an adult has a coloboma, it does not mean that the coloboma is going to affect all of these different tissues. It might only affect the iris, and if a person has a coloboma that only affects the iris and no other part of the eye or the body, that person could have perfect vision. They could have 20-20 vision. They may not need to wear contact lenses, glasses, or anything at all. But it could also be in another situation where it affects the eyes and the lip and the mouth and the heart, and it could be something such as CHARGE syndrome. But even with CHARGE syndrome, uh, these children do very, very well with all of these types of visual aids. So uh, these are some of the more common types of conditions that we'll see that a child may be born with, and we will identify these among children during the first few months of life uh, if they are evaluated. The main point of all of this is that these children 
do need to be examined as early as possible so that we could identify any of these kinds of visual problems. So we have about 15 minutes, and I really, really appreciate uh, all of your patience, and I really would appreciate if you could all stay on the line for the next 15 minutes, or if you have something to do, maybe you could keep the phone uh, just the way it is and don't hang up so it doesn't uh, interrupt the recording. Um, so if you do have a question, it could be related to anything. It doesn't have to be on these conditions. It could be related to any kind of condition, whether it's optic nerve hypoplasia or cortical vision impairment, and Sue and I will answer these questions. So to ask your question, go ahead and press star six, and that will allow you to talk, and then we'll take your questions. Hi. Uh, our son has MPS1 Hurler syndrome, and his low vision is caused by corneal clouding. I was wondering if um, other uh, people maybe uh, are also affected by this, and if maybe you could mention anything uh, relating to corneal clouding. I understand that, that the corneal transplants are are the quote-unquote cure, but but in the meantime, um, is his condition stabilized? Are there are there low vision um, treatments or, or suggestions that you have for a child like yes. Eric? Yes, yes, that's a very very good question. Um, when we do see children who do have problems with the cornea. There's a few things just to understand about the cornea. Uh, number one, the cornea is the most important structure of the entire eye to focus light into the retina for vision. When there are problems with the cornea, a child may be very sensitive to the direct sunlight or glare, and we find that they do very, very well with specific types of filters. The mm. reason that we do prescribe these filters is because we want to reduce scattering of light. When the cornea is not uniform in its appearance, the light rays will often scatter, kind of similar to if on your windshield of your car you had bird droppings or you had other nicks on that windshield. When the oncoming headlights are going to come at you, you'll see there's a lot of scattering of light. So the okay. first thing that we do is that we do recommend different types of filters. I would first recommend that the filter would be a polarized lens because a polarized lens is best at reducing that type of glare and scatter. If your son is very, very sensitive to the light where he does not like to open his eyes, we would recommend a gray polarized lens. If it seems as though that the cornea clouding is causing your child's vision to be somewhat blurrier, we then like to use what we call the blue free types of lenses, and that includes either a brown or orange color or an amber. You might wonder, why is it that skiers and target shooters, they will often wear these colored lenses, is that these colored lenses will filter out the blue light, and the blue light is the color of light that scatters the most when you have a corneal type of a dystrophy or you have corneal hazing. So when you eliminate the blue light from even entering the cornea, you could eliminate that type of scattering and glare, and that could really improve the vision. Now, another thing that we will recommend is that frames that could wrap around. Uh, there are many different types of frames that will wrap around the head of a child much better. So, for example, Converse, you know, the basketball shoemaker, uh, they're in the business of making frames for very young kids and these type of wraparound glasses really reduce a lot of the glare from entering the 
cornea from the side. Now, when a child has corneal problems, we also know that to improve their vision, we allow them to bring things as close as possible. Uh, looking through a corneal that is hazed is somewhat analogous to looking through a shower door. Uh, things that are further away will appear more clouded, but when we bring things closer, they do receive that kind of input. So if your son has not had any type of corneal transplant as of this date, I would really recommend allowing him to look at things at a close distance. I would use the Apple iPad and many of the other types of visual stimulation applications, and we want him to be looking at these things because then we can get the light information into the retina, and that will then stimulate the visual center of the brain. As far as cornea surgeries and cornea transplants, these are things that have come along so much in the last five years that I am seeing children who have not had vision for almost, you know, 10 years of their life, and they've now received a cornea transplant when previously all the other transplants failed. Uh, so we do see a lot of real, real good technological advances uh, surgically with cornea transplants. So if you have a cornea specialist, that would be something that would be very good. And lastly, I, I recommend that you do have a pediatric low vision doctor who can then measure the prescription that would be best for your son and then to help you to determine should it be a gray Polaroid or should it be a brown, uh, amber, or a yellow polarized lens and what kind of frame. Okay. Thank you very much. That was extremely helpful. Um, that was extremely helpful, really. Um, and there's just two things I just wanted to comment on really quickly. One, um, Eric seems to prefer almost the opposite. When he's in a room watching television, he prefers to have all the lights in the room on, and I don't know if that helps him see better, but he seems to, to prefer that. And uh, is that um, – he kind of found it. And then the other thing is you mentioned something during your presentation that I thought was interesting about white letters on a black background – and when he uses his iPad to read, I noticed lately he's been switching the background to dark and the, and the letters to white. So I'm wondering if that is the contrast helps him there. Yes. Um, by reading with a black background and white letters, if a person does have a retinal condition that affects the macula or if they're having problems with glare, which the cornea hazing does cause, uh, that really is a factor. So I think he's showing us that he is bothered by some levels of glare. However, because he likes to watch television in a room with the lights on, that tells me he's not overly sensitive to glare, and that tells me that his particular level of corneal hazing is not what I would call the most severe. Right. So, yeah, that's exactly what his corneal specialist uh, and his low vision specialist has said, so you're right, right on the money there. Again, thank you very, very much. Okay, yeah, thank you for the call. Thank you. Is there another question out there? Yeah, a few hopefully very quick questions. My son has, we believe, ocular albinism. Um, we've done some testing. We think it's ocular because he's got pigment everywhere, and OCA1 was ruled out through genetic testing. Um, I'm curious a few things. Can strabismus get worse? Okay, uh-huh. And is there another question uh, in addition uh, to the strabismus? Yeah. How necessary is the tinting as a you know regular part of the glasses? I don't mean the the getting dark when going outside, but just the tinting part uh, inside. Um, and the last one, checking my list here very quickly. Um, 
And lastly, you mentioned that if someone has chiro, whatever it is, if they have some pigment, that typically it means their vision's a little bit better. Does that hold true with ocular, like ocular albinism, then would there be a better vision because of the pigment than, say, OCA1 or another form of regular albinism? Yes, yes, those are great questions. And what we do find is that some children with albinism, uh, but not all, but some children with albinism will have what is called strabismus, and that Mm -hmm. is when the eyes are misaligned. Now, this particular type of misalignment of the eye, it might be that the eyes are crossed or the eyes are turned outward, and we find that this is something that often will improve with time, okay? Okay. It is something that often does improve with time, and if a child is younger than 12 months of age, we really don't recommend surgery. The reason for this is that the part of the brain that does control the two eyes together that part of the brain doesn't really mature until 12 months. So it's very common that a child younger than 12 months may have a misaligned eye, and after their first birthday, we start to see that the eye alignment improves. Another thing is that one of the more common causes of strabismus is if a child has an unequal degree of farsightedness between the two eyes, or if one eye sees more clearly than the other. So if one eye is seen more clearly than the other, the brain just says, I'll use this clearer eye, and I'm not going to use this weaker eye. When the brain stops using the weaker eye, the brain, what we call, suppresses the vision of that eye. In other words, the brain will turn off the vision of that eye so that the brain does not see double vision. So one of the things that many doctors will recommend is that if the clarity of sight between the two eyes is not equal, we often will recommend patching therapy where we patch the stronger eye to force the weaker eye to work. And by doing so, many times the weaker eye will develop better vision. And when the clarity of sight between the right and left eyes is equal, many times the eyes will straighten. We could also help to improve the clarity of sight between each eye by giving the child glasses. If the eyes are crossing, one of the most effective ways to straighten a crossed eye is that we will prescribe a child with bifocal glasses. And what the bottom lens of these glasses do is it helps to relax the eye and to straighten it. So. Overall, I find that strabismus is something that does not necessarily get worse, and in many cases, as a child gets older, the strabismus can improve. Um, the second, the second question that you had related to, if a person does have some type of pigmentation, that is an indication that they do have uh, tyrosine. Now, one of the things that we need to look at in this case, uh, which is called ocular albinism. In ocular albinism, what's happening there is that the skin and the hair has color, but the eye does not have normal color. So when the doctor looks inside the eye at the retina, the doctor could then also get an idea if he or she thinks that there is some pigment in the eye or if there is absolutely no pigment in the retina portion of the eye. And in these particular cases, it may then say that if there is some pigment, the vision may be better. But even for those children 
who don't have pigment and they have oculo, um, ocular albinism, um, they, just like children with oculocutaneous albinism, where it affects the eyes, hair, and skin, uh, all cases of albinism, I find that all children with albinism actually respond very, very, very well to the different types of uh, low vision aids. So I can't really say that one form of albinism is really that much better or that much worse than the other. I find that most patients who do have albinism of the eyes, hair, and skin, or if it's that that only affects the eyes, uh, when we see both of these types of cases, we're really happy. You know, as doctors, we're really happy because we know that these patients do very, very well. Now, I think you had a third question, and I'm kind of blanking on what that third question was. Was there something else that I missed on? Sue, can you help me out there? Was there one other thing, Sue, that I, I missed? I don't think so. Is there anything else? Did that answer your question as, as carefully as, as completely as possible? I think that was it. I think that was the. Um, I, I, I believe that was the. That was the. the okay. The uh, entirety of the question. Okay, great, great. And does anybody else have a question? Uh, I wanted to ask about um, coloboma and charge. Um, the charge syndrome with yes. charge syndrome is that a coloboma of the iris or the choroid or can be either. Yeah, that's a great question, and it can be of any any part of the eye. But what I have seen is that almost all cases, the majority of cases of charge syndrome, it's a coloboma that has affected the choroid and the iris. And very often when it does affect the choroid, it invades the macula. So they may have blurred central vision. They have reduced peripheral vision in the upper field of vision. Mm -hmm. But what's also kind of interesting about with CHARGE syndrome, it does not have to affect both eyes. Oh. It may be that the coloboma is only affecting the right eye and the left eye is doing quite well. So these children really use the left eye. They see quite well, and they, they can use vision very, very well. So there's many different possibilities that do occur with the CHARGE syndrome, but I really encourage that with CHARGE syndrome, we begin the intervention as soon as possible because I find that they do really very well. Sue and the, the staff at the Braille Institute, we've worked with a young a young girl and uh she was hearing impaired, and it happened to be both of her parents were deaf. And this young girl has just come along so well. I mean, it's just really remarkable. So it, it's a, a very good thing. Now that we've been working with these kids now for over 26 years, we're now seeing a lot of these children that are now adults, and they got boyfriends and girlfriends. Some are married, and uh, we could really see what's happening and what's what's the result of a lot of the work that we're doing. So my 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 recommendations are number one, definitely have a team of doctors. You do need an ophthalmologist to see if there's anything medically or surgically that needs to be done. But then also see a low vision doctor because a low vision doctor is going to provide you with the information of what your child is able to see, what devices could help your child to see better, 
and what are the things that the school needs to do to help your child to access the education. And then most importantly, what I would have to say most importantly, I spoke to a young patient of mine today, and he has aniridia. He's 18 years old. He's graduating from his high school, valedictorian. He's an incredible artist. He's just an amazing, amazing young man. And I had to ask him, I said, you know, most of the students who are visually impaired are not the valedictorian. In fact, most of the students that we see, they they don't even want to go to college. They don't want to do anything. And I said, what do you think it was that led to your success? And he said, my mom and dad. And I go, why? Did they buy you all sorts of things to help you or did they get you tutors? And he said, oh, no. My mom and dad would never let me get away with anything. I could never say, I can't do it because of my vision. And then the mom interjected and she said she was so depressed, so depressed when she found out that her son had this problem. She saw a psychiatrist at UCLA for a year. And the one thing she remembers from that psychiatrist, that psychiatrist said, never treat him any differently than you would any other child. If you do things for him, he's never going to develop. You let him do everything. If he's walking and he trips, that's okay. He's got to learn to look and to scan. you got to make him do his homework. Even if his eyes are tired, you got to still teach him to read. And the mom said that she is convinced the fact that she treated him like she treated her other children, it enabled him to develop those skills. So uh, that's a very, very important type of a thing to remember. So uh, I want to thank all of you for joining us this evening. And next month we're going to be having Elva Tomashiro from the Institute of Families when she's going to talk about how to interact with other family members and how to cope with having a child who's visually impaired. And I think that's going to be very, very helpful. Uh, I also want to thank, again, Mr. Dick Burden from Airs LA for recording this. And this podcast will be available on the Internet probably within the next three days. And you may go to uh, www.brailleinstitute.org and www.airsla.org. So. If I could just make one quick announcement. Um, the Braille Institute website is just being revamped right now a bit, and I just going to give you, if you could just give it about a week, I think we'll have everything up at about that time. So if you're looking for the archive podcast, uh, they should be up in about a week along with this one. Great, great. Oh, I can't wait to see the new website. It's going to be nice. <laughs> and yeah, I know that be, some of you good. did come on the um, program this evening with perhaps some other questions about uh, cortical vision impairment and other things, please know that I'm uh, open to receiving your phone calls and emails. Please send me an email, and you could do that. Uh, send it to Dr. Bill Foundation. That's D-R-B-I-L-L Foundation at gmail.com. Or you can call me on my cell phone at 310-597-2549. So uh, thank you again, everybody, and uh, we hope to see you next month.